I'm so delighted today to have incredible activists on the show. Uh, the second half of our show here on The Radical Reverend is going to be workers who have been categorized not as workers, but as independent contractors. We're going to talk about that on the second half of the show. The first half of the show, I want to speak uh, about something that really concerns a great many people in our town and across Ontario. And of course, we know that here on the Radical Reverend Show on CIUT 89.5 FM, we're broadcasting from Buffalo to Barry, uh, Kitchener to Coburg, a wide, wide range. And out there, what I'm hearing from folk is they're concerned about the educational system. They're concerned about the safety, they're concerned about their children, and if their teachers are concerned about themselves, and of course the other education uh, workers who are in that system. And I have the best person um, on the show to talk about that, and that is none other than Merritt Stiles. She's a former TDSB school trustee, and now of course the official opposition critic on the educational file for the NDP at uh, the Ontario Legislature. So welcome, Merritt, to the Radical Reference Show. It is great to be here. I'll be looking forward to this. Uh, so, Barrett, first of all, let's let's talk about a little bit about your history because you've had a long history. Not before even being a trustee with with the NDP. Talk about a bit about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been active, like an activist, I think, all my life. But certainly, you know, coming out of university, I started working in election campaigns and moved to Toronto and and moved into the area that I'm living in now, actually, or that I that I represent, Davenport. And I, I loved the community and I got involved with the group of activists there that were, everybody that seemed to be, to share my view about things and my values was, was in the NDP at the time. So we became very close and I've been working on elections and, and, and lots of other things as a volunteer for many years while I was doing policy work, a lot of policy work. I used to work at ACTRA as well as their uh, director of public policy. But, um, you know, I, I was the president of the federal party uh, not that long ago, uh, actually, just before I became the trustee, um, or just around the time I was a school board trustee, I became the president of the federal NDP, um, which was a which was a great learning curve, <laughs> um, and uh, and it was but exciting and also interesting to see how we were organizing across the entire country, uh, you know. And I brought I think some of that experience to my campaigns and to the issues that I try to work on in my writing because I, I see us as really part of a movement. I know you're sort of you see it the same way. This is about building a movement across uh, party lines, even you know, uh, just to get good things done and to fight for social justice. And you're also a parent. You have a child in the system. I do tell us about that. I do. I have one child that's now in her second year of university, but I have a, another child in grade eleven. So she's been actually we've been living through uh, this experience of. Um, emergency remote learning uh, and now a, a kind of cobbled, hobbled together uh, situation where she's part-time online, part-time in class. Uh, and it's been tough. I, I certainly identify with parents out there who've been struggling and, and, and the kids, the students, who I have to say, I think we don't hear from nearly enough. Now, this has been an ongoing issue. I, I mean, it's been an ongoing issue forever, as you know, as a former trustee, but when COVID hit, it became a serious 
almost life-threatening issue, the safety in our schools. We have a thousand cases and counting right now in the school system. Uh, almost every day there's a new school that has a case. Um, what should have, could have the government done um, and, and what's being done? Well, like you said, you know, I, I think that it, when you think back to where we were in February, March, we were, we, we'd had all these work actions by um, the education unions um, and families and teachers and other educational workers were really united in this fight against the uh, Ford government's attempt to, uh, to create bigger class sizes and also to introduce this mandatory online learning which you know, it, it just seems like another lifetime ago now, but that was not that long ago. And, and then this hit and then COVID hit. And so I think, you know, obviously it caught everybody off guard, but I think from the government's perspective, what really shocked me was obviously we had to make some, some serious moves then. And there was an attempt to move everybody into this remote emergency distance learning thing. And, you know, a lot of the teachers and education workers, you know, worked really hard to do the best they could, but it was a tough time for students, for families, for everyone. What, it, what really galls me though, is that from that moment in March until now, certainly up until the beginning of September, um, the government really doesn't seem to have been doing a whole lot. You know, what they weren't doing was they were not collaborating with the workers on the front line. Uh, they were not working hand in hand with the school boards to, to who, who, by the way, you know, big school boards, especially like the Toronto District School Board, you know, have a capacity to do things that are very innovative. And we're working really hard all out for many, many months to come up with different plans. Government didn't really work with them at all. Government did not also uh, get to work on hiring people which was gonna be critical. And it was one of the things that we in the NDP and the official opposition um, put forward, you know, back in the spring, we started to talk about the need to hire new teachers, the need to um, adjust the way we were gonna conduct the school year, the, way, the, the need to have smaller class sizes, which was immediately apparent to, I think, everybody that we should try to have the smallest class sizes possible. And that, again, would require more resources, more teachers, more other educational workers. What was astonishing was the government really didn't come up with a plan until August. And when they did, it was like, it was a couple of pretty loose directives that seemed to have nothing to do with what school boards had been preparing for. And, and then they proceeded to uh, impose certain directives on boards and boards spent the last couple of weeks of summer scrambling to put together a plan for the return to school. And that is, I mean, what we are seeing today is largely because of all of that. Um, the chaos, the confusion, the fact that we still have in most parts of this province, the same number of students in classrooms as we had in March when school was first disrupted um, is astonishing because we're telling everybody else that we need to be in smaller groups. But for some reason, children, teenagers, that's not the way it is. And I should add, it, it does differ a little from region to region. Um, hot areas like, um, like the GTA um, were able to, to have a, a system where they have like 15 or so teenagers in a high school class. And, but, but, you know, when you talk about elementary students in particular, it's pretty much status quo. And this is one of the things that we've been fighting really hard for. Oh, as well, paid sick leave. Paid sick leave would be absolutely 
would be would be a game changer in this moment. And the fact that so many families don't have access to paid sick leave means that that students have that the parent when a student is sick or a family is sick, you know, not many people have the choice to stay home or risk their job. And of course, uh, their wholly ancillary services like school buses that have been complaining um, about the number of, of kids who impossible to physically distance in those circumstances, uh, never mind in the, the, the classrooms themselves. And I always think, you know, try to keep masks on kids. We can't keep them on adults. <laughs> you know, we can't. <laughs> I mean, teachers are trying their best. Um, so, I, I mean, I hear from teachers all the time, and, and one of the things I hear too, and I want you to comment on the school buses as well, but uh, of what it's like a day in the life of, but um, of, you know, teachers who've retired, long retired, who are in their late 60s, early 70s, you're getting calls to maybe come back. I mean, this is crazy, right? Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, I mean, I I, I appreciate that there, well, there are some retired teachers who, you know, retired teachers can work a certain number of days a year, and many choose to. Uh, they like to be in the classroom. It's it's wonderful to have that opportunity. Um, and we need them. We need their experience, their passion for education. But in this moment, the fact that the government has to rely on, on people who are generally of an older, of older demographic, who are more at risk, the fact that the government has to rely on that demographic is, is bizarre. And, and at the same time, the government was making it really hard, you, you, you may recall, for, for our student teachers. Student teachers were being forced to do these, these ridiculous, I think, you know, ridiculous math tests for 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 a high school teacher, uh, future high school teacher who's going to be who's a specialist in art and history to have to go back and now relearn a lot of math is is absurd. That's not what they need to be focused on. So all of those things were kind of punishing teachers at a time when we need to be actually supporting teachers, and that has been so clear. Oh, on the bus thing, I I really do. You know, busing has been I think for many people this kind of hidden the secret issue. Um, but it has been a huge issue in many parts of the province for many years now. Part of it is how do you recruit drivers when their pay is so low and, and there really aren't that many benefits to it, you know? And so they're, they're underappreciated, underpaid. And now we have a situation where the government basically said, put the same number of kids on those buses and didn't even waited until busing actually started before they gave bus drivers a plan for how they might want to sit kids sit kids on the bus. Um, most bus drivers are are now still driving the same number of kids they were driving before, and and also and we're talking demographics here again. A lot of the bus drivers tend to be on the older side, and so um, it is it has been uh, very difficult. It was difficult enough to recruit bus drivers in this moment. It's been nearly impossible, and it's a crisis. It's a crisis across the province. Uh, in case you're just tuning in, uh, speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show to Merritt Stiles, who is the education critic for the Ontario New Democratic Party, the official opposition, and of course we're talking about education. Um, so there's a history, of course, in this educational system of ours, too. And I remember when I was there, uh, a different uh, government, the Liberal Party at that point, uh, and they had still kept the Mike Harris funding formula in place, which um, is still in place, of course. Um, nothing has changed. They had 14 years to change it, did not do so. Um, I mean, there's a long history to the underfunding of our school system generally. Could you say a few words just about the history before we even got to Doug Ford? Yeah, so I think that's a great way to describe it. I mean, I always try to describe to people this the funding formula, which is hugely complicated, but 
if I can summarize it, it's they 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 fund based on bums in seats, <laughs> bums in desks, and they don't fund based on need. And so what the liberals did um, for 15 years, which was, I mean, I think absurd, they knew what needed to be done. They knew the whole thing needed to be shifted. But rather than do that, they took a lazy approach. They slapped a lot of Band-Aids on issues. So they slapped Band-Aids on, you know, special needs. They spent, spent, slapped another Band-Aid over here on busing or whatever. And, you know, the problem with Band-Aids is they're really easy to rip off. <laughs> and that's what then happened. And some of those Band-Aids, they even themselves ripped off. Then the conservatives come in and keep ripping them off. And again, we have not fundamentally re re-examined and rethought the way we should fund education. But but I should say, we've known this was, should happen for years. I mean, there have been commissions, um, commission after commission, actually, saying what needed to be done. And this government and the liberal government know that. Um, I think what we're seeing now with the Ford government is a government that fundamentally disrespects publicly funded education. And to me, uh, you know, this is now, this is where the, the liberals left it actually a mess because they refused to make those significant changes. And now we have a system that is systemically underfunded and in crisis. And, you know, this is exactly what governments like Doug Ford's government look for when they want to begin to um, dismantle public education. And uh, yeah, and talking about privatization, I mean, again, um, this is in part anecdotal, but it wasn't anecdotal when I was there. You're seeing more and more people of means it, that many of whom are committed to public education, or at least say they are, but their children, you know, have special needs or um, there's special reasons and they end up, ha you know, moving from the public system into the private system at incredible cost. Um, and this has accelerated, of course, under the current situation. Um, do you think... I mean, you are in touch with Leche, you know. Do you think this is this is an overt um, plan on the government to really go the American way, to kind of dismantle the ability of our public education system to meet the needs of all people? You know, what's your take on that? When the government was first elected, the conservatives were first elected in 2018, one of the first things they did was they, they got Ernst & Young to come in and go through all the books and say what they should do to save some dollars, to save some money in Ontario. And one of the, and the line under education was a, was a short one. It didn't draw a lot of attention. It was kind of hidden away, but it was very significant to me because basically what it said was, you should look at examples like they have in the United States of charter and voucher school programs. And it's right there in black and white. And so what have they been doing up till now? I mean, again, I think they have been moving in a direction that will undermine public education, whether it's forcing kids to do online courses pre post pandemic, um, whether it's cramming more kids into our schools. Um, and, and in fact, what I think where I think this is going is that I think the government will eventually um, try to support parents or under the guise of supporting parents uh, will offer up some sort of a voucher system. Um, and again, it will also happen under the guise of choice, which is exactly how it happened in the United States. And they've also brought in advisors. Um, the, the premier's new advisor on um, human rights and um, anti-racism or whatever, I can't even remember his name. Uh, 
Mr. Giovanni, but he's he's actually been a massive proponent of charter and voucher schools. So this isn't just a, a suspicion we have. This is very much a very clear direction. And you know that the government uh, Ford also refuses to share the mandate letters that he wrote for his to his ministers when they were first put in place. So so we don't even know what they've been mandated to do. But there's a reason he's hiding those. And my fear in education is that that is exactly where they're headed. And interestingly enough, going way back, um, but uh, when John Tory moved at uh, moved on on this file in a similar sort of direction, um, was massively defeated um, on, on in part because of that. Um, so we're we're back, um, but Ford is riding pretty high in the polls right now, despite it all. Uh, you want to comment on that? Speaking again to Merritt Stiles here, education critic for the official opposition at Queens Park, Merritt. Well, I mean, you know, we've seen almost every political leader during this pandemic ride high in the polls. And I think that uh, Doug Ford, uh, I mean, I know that I, I, I'm not, it's not a personal attack on him here. I, I do. I mean, I believe that we all want to try to help each other. But Doug Ford's version of that is very different than, say, yours or mine. I mean, I think Doug Ford thinks that if he can make everybody feel good, then it'll be fine. And that, you know, it's individuals who are making the wrong choices, not him. He really refuses to take any responsibility for the failure of his government in this moment. And, you know, and, there, and we've seen, of course, you know, more than 1,800 people die in long-term care facilities. As you mentioned, we've got lots of kids who are, who are contracting COVID. And, and it isn't just the kids being sick. It's the fact that those then are brought back to their families, that the COVID is brought back to their families. It's very, um, it's very frightening. And I think that Doug is, uh, uh, Mr. Ford is, is afraid right now. I see that in the legislature. I'm sure you remember that in, from the days when you were in, in, in parliament, that you can really tell when things are shifting because the, 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 this climate in the room changes. And what Doug has been trying to do is avoid the legislature, first of all, uh, because we ask him questions that, that call into question his performance as premier in this really critical moment. Um, and he'd rather be out there, you know, giving doing basically election style press conferences with nobody really asking tough questions and um and so i think things can change a lot i think things will change i think ontarians i certainly see it in in parents as you mentioned early parents are furious they are furious with what this government has done and they're worried about the future for our kids um people who've had family in long-term care of course are devastated so um i think that at the end of the day Doug Ford is going to is going to find his popularity takes a bit of a hit, I would suspect. But most importantly, you know, at the end of the day, even if he is unpopular, it's really up to us to put forward solutions, alternatives that that really show people that there are there are different ways we could attack these issues. There are different ways. It didn't need to be this way. And I really, truly believe that I've seen it in, 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 in many areas that this government has had. And, uh, and, and we cannot also let this government use the pandemic as an excuse to dismantle important essential institutions like public education in this province. So Merritt Stiles, um, what are the solutions? Tell us what, what, I mean, NDP's government, what would you do differently as Minister of Education? 
Well, I would, first of all, I really would tackle the education funding formula. And I know that sounds a little dry. <laughs> it's not a sexy issue for many people, but it is absolutely fundamental. So uh, that has to be addressed. Um, we also need to, you know, we talk a lot about dismantling, you know, or, or addressing systemic racism and discrimination, particularly anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism and discrimination in our, in our schools. Um, but we actually have to have a government, a provincial government that's willing to take leadership there and not just rely on school boards to come up with a patchwork of programs. You know, we need real leadership. Um, and some of that does mean also uh, ensuring that, um, you know, our, our teachers and that we are, we're, we're making sure that the teachers and the people that work in our schools better represent the communities that the kids that they teach. And I think that also, that comes early on, that comes in education. That comes actually in ensuring that we have more diversity in, in, our, in our teachers' colleges. Um, so those two things are really important. Um, I also really think we have to address um, particularly, and, and again, an issue that has kind of disappeared almost in the, in the public realm uh, over the last few months is, is the challenges of special needs kids and families with special needs kids. Um, not that long ago, we were, we were struggling to, to get support to kids, to families of children with autism. And, uh, but I can tell you right now, when, when that issue disappears, quote unquote, from the, the media, it sure isn't disappearing for those families. In fact, it's a sign that they're so deeply overwhelmed that they really don't have the ability to raise their voices. And we need to keep those voices public and present. Um, those are some of the things I would look at. Um, and I, and I, I mean, I have to say as well, you know, we have to fund education properly. So it's, it's rejigging the education formula, but it's also acknowledging that we have many areas um, that have been deeply underfunded, like capital, capital repairs. Um, they went up to 15.8 billion in capital repair backlog under the liberals, it's just astonishing. Um, you know, this is what happens when you just don't continue to properly fund education and schools. And schools, as we know, are not just schools, they're, they're community hubs. They're the place that our communities rely on and um, the center of many communities. So we need to be seriously looking at that. And from, I think you know this, uh, but I think one of the ways to do that is to make sure that developers are actually paying their fair share um, of, in terms of education development charges to help address some of those repair and backlog issues. We only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to talk about the mood at Queen's Park, what it's like for you. I mean, you know, what were some of the things that maybe surprised you when you were elected there? And what's it been like working there? Because I have to say, you know, I left as the, as the Ford uh, government was elected. And uh, I remember working with conservatives at, in the opposition seats. Uh, and I am shocked dismayed might be the term, at, at the actions of some of those people that we worked with, you know, we worked with uh, and on some issues. For example, and I'll just call it out, um, Christine Elliott uh, chaired a commission on, uh, you know, disabilities and, and the services that we offer to those who have disabilities. Um, and uh, we traveled the province, we made 23 recommendations, all parties signed on. The first one of which was get rid of all waiting lists. And, um, and, and she signed on to many of my LGBTQ2 plus bills and to see her clapping now for a man she ran against. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I'm looking at the conservatives and I'm wondering what it's like to work on the other side of the aisle now um, with them. I mean, is, is there collegiality? Like, can you get things done or what's the mood? What's the mood, Merritt? Well, I, I wish I could say there was a lot of collegiality, but it, there really isn't. And, 
you know, we see that, as you know, in the legislature in question period, there's a fair amount of drama <laughs> and theater. Um, but it's also been pretty toxic. And I think it's clear um, that women in particular uh, bear the brunt of that for sure. And, um, and, 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 and it's felt even more strongly by, by some of the women in my caucus, for example, Jill Andrew, who is uh, MPP for Toronto St. Paul's, who uh, is the first black lesbian woman elected in the legislature. Um, and when she speaks, the the tone and the heckling, it really is, it's quite noticeable how much it increases um, from the conservative side. So those things, they really, they, they can really shake you. And I think that for a lot of us, there were, I mean, 20 new MPPs on the NDP side, it's been, it's been difficult. I'm pretty experienced in politics relatively, and it was hard for me. Um, but so then you kind of think, okay, well, that's the, that's the reality in there, but we can actually get work done behind the scenes. That's how it usually works, right? Maybe in committees, we can get some work done. We can take bad legislation and tweak it a little bit, maybe take out the really bad stuff, make it better, but that's also not happening. And that's where I really think things have broken down. Um, we, we, we can't even, um, people come in and, and they bring great ideas, uh, the, the pub from the community, from the public. Um, and then we try to put forward some of those ideas, um, to, to make changes and tweaks to legislation that we don't agree with the legislation maybe, but we think, okay, well, at least we can try to make it less bad. And we just can't move anything forward. And, um, I don't, I hate to admit it because I, I really believe that we in opposition are play a very, very important role, but I, I would have hoped to see. Um, a little bit more of that tradition of at least, you know, working together behind the scenes. It's been very difficult. I will say in the early days of the pandemic, I asked the Minister of Education if we could have meetings every couple of weeks just to brief each other. And I, I in that moment, I did feel like we were we were having real conversations about real issues, really important issues, what was happening and how we were gonna respond. And myself and Dolly Begum, who's our another MPP from Scarborough, who is the opposition childcare critic, um, we, we brought forward lots of information from stakeholders and ideas. Um, and then it stopped. <laughs> it stopped when we started to um, raise those issues more publicly. And so it, it you know, there this is unfortunate and I, I think it really does mean like we we can continue to try to make things better and we will, we absolutely will keep bringing forward solutions, keep bringing forward ideas, keep trying to um, to make things work better. But uh, we we need to we, we need to get this government out ultimately. And, and I think, you know, it's also for me as somebody who's a big fan of electoral reform, it's another example of why we need to change the way all this works. It is toxic. It does not work well the way that this, this first past the post uh, parliamentary system. Um, I just want to add one other thing, which is, you know, Sherry, it has been wonderful to have, um, have Saul Mamakwa in the, in the House of, in the um, Ontario legislature, because it also is, you know, to, to see things through him from his perspective as an Indigenous man, uh, is it's really striking, you know, the introduction of things like um, having everybody sing God Save the Queen, you know, all of these, this, this, this colonialism that continues to exist in our parliamentary system. Um, it's, it's stark and it's again, toxic and we need to make some serious changes. And that's why I hope we get elected so we can make those changes. 
Thank you, uh, Merritt. I've been speaking, of course, here on the Radical Reverend Show, whether you're catching it on podcast or on the radio station, um, with Merritt Stiles, who, as you've heard, a long history in politics, but now the education critic for the Ontario New Democratic Party. Thanks so much, Merritt, for being on the show. And uh, I, I guess one final quick question, we've got less than a minute left, but um, what can we do, uh, what can we out here do to get some changes? Well, there's some amazing uh, work going on, I think, across Ontario um, in community in communities. So, for example, Ontario Parent Action Network are a group of, of parents who got together uh, and have been fighting for smaller class sizes, for more support, and for public education, ultimately. They're amazing. I would say follow them on Twitter or any other social media and and, and take action because they have great actions underway. Um, and, you know, make sure that your voice is heard. You know, call out those conservative. If you have a conservative MPP in your riding, make sure that conservative MPP knows how you feel. I know it's frustrating for people, um, but taking part in those actions, calling your elected representatives, emailing them, it does matter. As you and I both know when they're getting thousands of emails and calls, they may not sound like they're listening, but they're feeling it. And it's really important that they feel that and they understand how unhappy people are, but also how much we value our public education system. Thanks so much, Merit Stiles. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. This is she, Sherry DeNovo, in another life. And uh, after that conversation with Merritt, um, we're ready to talk about some other workplaces other than the educational system in, in Ontario. Uh, but please, you know, keep in mind what we were speaking about with Merritt and do keep in touch with your MPPs about this, uh, whether they respond to you or not, let them know what you're thinking because they do look at the numbers even if they don't respond to you so so keep up the activism on that front for our children and education workers behalf um, now we're going to turn to another kind of workplace um, this is a hotel a new hotel in toronto hotel x uh, happens to be not far from where i live um, in parkdale high park um, it really built on uh, the cne grounds as we know them and very luxe. I mean, I haven't been in there, but but we're going to hear about what's been happening uh, there and really looking at the hospitality industry generally and what's this is a case uh, of what has been happening in other other uh, workplaces as well. And to do that and to help us with that is an employee, a former employee of Hotel X, Chris Archer. Chris grew up in Toronto. He lives here still with his great dame. Uh, he started as a dishwasher in the in the uh, hospitality industry at 15 and then moved to the front of the house at age 20 and 10 years ago uh, took the leap and got accredited as a sommelier uh, and he was still working at that. So Chris, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you for having me. You've been in the hospitality industry for a long time now. Generally, you know, before COVID hit, what was your experience of it? Um, well, I fell in love with it. I was kind of born into it. My mom has been in uh, the industry for years as well. And that's one of the reasons why I started in the dish pit. She wanted to know where I was. Um, but really, you know, fell in love with the idea of actually service and bringing something to people's tables. One of the reasons why I got into sommelier and wine is I have read fondness of history and, uh, 
and geography and traveling and culture. And so that kind of falls into it, but it also kind of can bring a mystique to the dining experience. When someone wants to put the food and wine together, kind of can bring something, bring a totally new experience to dining. And that's one of the reasons why I focus that way. And it's important that people who are listening know that, I mean, a lot of work and a lot of education goes into what you do, um, especially as a sommelier. Maybe talk a little bit about that because, you know, people walk into restaurants, they don't really know the lives of the people who, you know, come up to their tables sometimes. So, you know, talk about that a bit. Yeah, um, it's been a long work in progress. When I first moved to the front of house into into uh, serving people, um, I was helping with inventory and just getting getting used to knowing the wines by that, and was working with the sommelier. Um, but in terms of class work and going and going and learning about it, it was probably altogether I put in probably about six years through various programs. I've been through three different programs, um, two to a full credited sommelier. One I only did about part of about part of the way. Um, but it takes lots of study. My to my final accreditation for when I worked at when I went to George Brown through through CAPS was a full year, and uh, it's yeah, it's it was an intense program. And people, I, I don't think, really get that this is a profession, and that even if you're not a sommelier, but just you know, if you're you know a server, um, especially in high-end restaurants, I mean, a lot goes into that—a lot of experience, a lot of years—and and you take a lot of you know, can't say the word on radio, but you take a lot of it, you know, in a day's work on a good day. So then, you know, COVID hit, and um, my daughter also worked in the service industry for for many, many years. Um, so. I know where off I speak here. Um, I mean, that industry has been just devastated, um, just generally. So um, maybe gives a little bit of a backdrop because, you know, people I think get restaurant owners are hurting, um, but the staff who work in those places are really frontline workers, even when we opened up there for a bit during the summer and uh, took some risks just doing that. Um, and uh, and one of the, the risks that, you know, you've definitely taken as, as shots to your in, your income. So, you know, you know, what's the mood among just generally, not people that necessarily work for Hotel X, but just generally in the industry right now? Well, I know there's a lot of people out there who are really, really frustrated. Uh, personally, I'm one of them. I've kind of given up at this point to try to find a job. There, there was, I gave up probably about four weeks ago. When I was looking, there was every position that was posted was about two to four positions and 100 to 800 applicants. It was, uh, it's just, and at that point, you know, when you're getting one interview a week at the most, it just seems a little, uh, a little like there's not a lot of work out there. and. Um, my situation, I'm fairly comfortable with with my expenses, but it's you know there's nothing else going on, um, and that was one of the things that's really kind of sucks about this whole situation. Yeah, um, and just uh, so people know, I mean, uh, thank goodness for CERB and uh, hopefully its replacement and the people who keep the government's uh, feet to the fire to get it get it out there um, for us. Uh, did that program help you? And are you kind of, have you or anybody you know applied for the new version of CERB? Uh, yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it's helped me. It's the only way that I was able, I'm able to stay afloat. <laughs> um, 
with just in, just in terms of my expenses are very low, so I'm able to 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 make it work. But otherwise, inside the city, I couldn't see how it how it would work for a lot of people. Yeah. So let's get into it then. Um, uh, speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show to someone in the service industry who knows all about it, sommelier, um, uh, but started as a dishwasher, worked his way up, Chris Archer. So Chris, tell me um, about your employment at Hotel X. When did it start? What happened, et cetera? Just g- give us a story. Um, I was there for when they opened up their the their fine dining restaurant on the first floor. It was opened a little bit later, so I've only I've only been working there about six to eight months. Um, but when it hit, we were all promised our jobs back. Uh, we stopped work on I believe March fifteenth, and you know kept in contact with the management, and they kept pushing the date back which made sense for what was happening in the city. Um, and then when uh, we found out about the NHL bubble that was supposed to happen at Hotel X, and it did, prior to it commencing, though, we told were told that uh, Peter and Paul's, which the, was the food and beverage handlers at Hotel X, had been locked out of the, locked out of the site. And uh, that new company had gone in there. Okay, so back it up a bit. So there was a company that was handling this for Hotel X, and then you spoke about a bubble, and not everybody in listener land will understand what that is. So just explain what happened there. Yeah, so we were we were in lockdown, and then um, there was news that the NHL was coming to Toronto, and they were doing a uh, bubble to protect the players, and they were going to have two sites, and Hotel X was one of those sites where uh, – so all the NHL was going to live in the hotel and they were going to have the services of the staff there. Which must have come as, you know, great news at the time, right? Yeah, we were all really excited. One, to go back to work and get out of the, the monotony of uh, sitting around all day. But it was also, you know, it was it was exciting. The NHL and we're we're going to we're going to go back to it. And then what happened? And then we found out that. Um, the company that I was working for, which was subcontracted to do the food and beverage for Hotel X, had been locked out and a new company had been had replaced it and uh, has started a rehiring process for all the staff. And what did that mean for you and others that had been working there prior to all of this? Uh, essentially, we were out of work. Um, it was very much a limbo type of situation where the comp where Peter and Paul's the company I had, that had employed me were very unsure of how, uh, how it was going to move forward. So they were like, hold tight. We're going to figure this out. We're going to figure this out. And it took about a month before we find, before they finally said, okay, we don't have a, we don't have a venue for you. We don't have any work for you. So unfortunately we're going to have to let you go. So is the NHL still moving into Hotel X or what? No, they moved out at the beginning of September. Right. So a new uh, provider of the food services has moved in there um, and just let everybody go. Is that the gist of it? Yeah. Even I applied for a position there after when I found out they were doing a hiring. Um, They were only offering uh, 10-week contracts. I had benefits. There was no benefits. There was crazy clauses of non-compete for a year and no overtime and all that type of stuff. And I'm sure they still got people. 
wanting a job despite everything, yeah. right? That's how desperate yeah. times are. So what happened then? What did you and the other employees do at that point? Um, well, I started organizing as well as a few others, um, making calls to get legal advice on which which directions we should go. Um, yeah, but for the most part, we are still kind of stuck in this limbo aspect because there's uh, no clear answer on who is responsible for us. Uh, there's no clear legislation on who's responsible is responsible to us for having this mass termination of 200 people. Um, and it's they're in legal court, so they don't want to really talk about it. Talk about it, but no one's no one's sitting down. So basically, we are trying to kind of bring attention to what's happening. So is, is there been a union involvement at all in this struggle? No, because any time union was mentioned that when the ho- at the hotel, those people were generally let go, <laughs> which is pretty typical. So what are the, what's the legal advice going forward? What what's happening right now? Where where's that at? So legally, we are in a uh, the the public campaign in terms of trying to get trying to get a uh, social conscious about it. it puts a little bit of social pressure on to who we believe is responsible in Hotel X. Um, and then beyond that, we are, it's looking at court. And, um, so right now we're focusing on the social and then if it gets to a court battle, that's where, that's where we'll have to take it. Another guest that we've had on the show was one of the organizers named Tom McKechnie of Fedora, the Fedora workers, where the company kind of just picked up and said, we're taking our toys and going home and you're all laid off because you're not really employees anyway. Um, and uh, they fought that and did, in fact, win a settlement. So so maybe hopefully that's a harbinger of some good news for you, um, because, I mean, 200 people, that's a lot of people yeah. to be treated that way. Now, the employer, do they have other properties? Are they somewhere else that we would see them in in business in Toronto? Um, is there some other way of putting pressure on them or have they just disappeared? Um, no, the hotelier is uh, Library Collections Hotels. They are based out of New York. They do have one in Budapest as well. Um, as well as they are doing an expansion on the CNE grounds itself. Uh, they The hotel is part of um, an esports arena that seats supposed to seat 10,000 that is being built there. Uh, they partnered up with Harlow, which is one of the companies that took over my, took over the food and beverage in hotel X with uh, Jeffrey Kimmel to build that. So where should people vent? To show support directly. The best thing to do, I think would be to uh, sign up for our 15 in fairness, uh, hashtag pay up hotel X Every signature on that an email will be sent to the CEO, uh, Henry Callen. Mm. So Workers Action is involved in this then, the Workers yes. Action Centre, yep. because they're the 15 and fairness folk. Um, and that's good. And that means that there is some union clout behind you. Yeah. Not directly, but indirectly. And that's a very positive step. Um, and what about Harlow? Are there other restaurants that we should be aware of that they're they're running or anything there? Um, well, Har- uh, Harlow is the chase and all the affiliates beyond that. Um, I don't actually, I haven't kept track of what their establishments are during the during this. I know 
they've had a few issues and some some stuff has closed, but I believe the Chase is still open. That they do high-end seafood restaurants. Okay, so we should keep an eye open for any restaurants that they're involved in as well, and perhaps just talk to Harlow, get in touch. That's so important that we keep the pressure up. Uh, By the way, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show. We're in the second half right now. Whether you're listening on podcast or on the radio station at 89.5 FM, um, this is a show that happens, of course, every week. I'm Sherry DeNovo. I'm the host. And we're speaking to Chris Archer. Uh, Chris uh, was a sommelier um, at Hotel X. Uh, If you don't know where that is, um, it's the great new... um, huge hotel actually on the CNE grounds and um, was at one point almost the home to the NHL, it sounds like. Um, And what we're talking about is the fact that they let go um, pretty unceremoniously about 200 employees. And by the way, did a classic, then hired people with less guarantees of job, with uh, strenuous non-compete clauses and no guarantees, and certainly did not... um, do the right thing and just rehire the employees who had been waiting because of COVID. Is that a pretty good summation, Chris? <laughs> that is a pretty good summation. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, what really concerns me and why I wanted to have you on the show is that this is happening not just in your area, um, not just at Hotel X, but this is kind of a general trend, it seems to me, in the service industry. Are you seeing that too with other employers? Um, yeah, I've, uh, I've, This is my third hotel I've worked in, and two of them were, the restaurant was a different company, was basically subcontracted out. And even in other companies where I've worked, the idea of how the staff are hired are different. So they'll have a bunch of investors to build the restaurant. They'll hire staff for the restaurant, but the management company will be subcontracted out and they're the ones that do all the hiring so i could see it i haven't seen it happen to me to me personally or know of people that have happened but i could see if there is an issue between the investors and owners of the restaurant and the management company how the staff can be stuck in stuck in the middle like of the same thing another thing that people probably aren't aware of for hospitality workers like yourself is you're not subject to the same minimum wage guidelines that everybody else is because presumably you get tips and you mentioned 15 in fairness which is a terrific campaign that almost got there um, and then got wound back by the Ford government in this province um, but almost uh, well did win it for a brief period there not long enough to get it implemented so talk about the wages and what people are working for in the industry. Yeah, um, one of the things was about Hotel X is that they did actually pay, pay a fair wage. It was, uh, it was they, they went, well, Peter and Paul's when I worked there pay, paid us a good wage. But for the most part, I think server minimum wage is $13 or $13.10. So far, it's better than what it was 10 years ago when I think I made $7 an hour. Um, I think one that's one of the reasons why this industry people get away with it though get away with uh, not supporting the staff the way they should is because generally we're used to being pushed around and we're used to not having um, enough money being brought in on a check to go on EI. Personally, I'm 38 years old and this is the first time I've ever worked or ever had EI because it's just 150 200 a week wouldn't have cut it for me. <laughs> Do you happen to know if the new employees there are making the same wage? Yeah, the new employee, the new employees 
when they when they went back are making the same wage, um, but I have no idea about the benefits because uh, that 10 week contract over. So I'm sure I think they probably would have kept some on, but I don't know uh, what the contracts were moving forward with it. I do know that some people signed extension contracts and haven't worked an hour since. Yeah, which is it, which is desperation time. And even at $13, living in Toronto is pretty difficult. Um, and then, you know, somebody listening and will say, oh, yeah, but you, you make all this money in tips. Um, and I do recall a time at Queen's Park, we had a bill because again, what people don't often know is that in many establishments, management claws back some of those tips. Um, and it doesn't all go to the staff. You may think you're, you're tipping your server or your sommelier or somebody, um, and you're not. You're actually, um, first of all, it gets divided up, as it should in many cases, to people that are in the, in the kitchen and not at your table. But um, in many establishments, it got clawed back by management because they just calculate how much, well, I know sometimes, um, how much you're getting paid. Um, maybe talk about that a bit, because I know we brought in a bill that we fought for, and again, didn't quite win. Um, yeah, no, it's it can be really hard. A any place that you go to work where management takes an active role in the tips is generally a red flag to stay away from. Um, for the for the most part, the places that are really good that take care of servers are the ones that allow us to handle the tips ourselves. And in terms of um, divvying it out, but divvying it out properly in terms of in like set points not just how much you want to give out but knowing where the money's going and uh knowing how to how to hold people accountable if that money doesn't doesn't get there yeah again um you're listening to the radical reverend show i'm talking to chris archer one of the some 200 employees that was let go from hotel x flashy new hotel in the service industry and uh, then when a new management group took over not rehired a sadly common story and something that we don't recognize often is how this has impacted thousands of people in our city, the shutdown of restaurants and that's COVID, that's unavoidable, but the effect on the lives of the people who work in those restaurants, not just the owners of the restaurants who look like they might get some sort of bailout from the government. But again, the servers are out there too. And again, living on whatever they can get from the government right now. Do you see the service industry going back to what it was? I mean, what do you think is going to happen after? I mean, hopefully, touch you know, would um, we will you know outlive this pandemic in some way, shape, or form? Is this going to have a permanent impact? Do you think on the service industry, restaurants, and like? Um, I think it will have a lasting impact. Um, I think everything is always in evolution. So the idea of what permanency is is kind of kind of a throw up um and but it's going to have a lasting effect you can see it and you can see it in restaurants that have already started taking away the ideas of tips and paying fair wages and, and salary salaries to uh servers and well it's controversial because there are servers that agree with it and there are servers that don't agree with it um there are many places where servers did get away with making a lot of money <laughs> and the idea of and the kitchen sometimes can suffer when you know they they are working just off a of salary so i think the idea that we're in a point now that i think we can make a fairness across the board um one of the biggest pro problems that the service industry has had over the past two years is getting uh, kitchen people to work because it is they don't make enough money um, 
And so it's about trying to, I think, bring fairness to everything. Absolutely. And I think the idea, again, of the, the bill was that um, tip outs were absolutely essential for people like yourself when you were 15 and being a dishwasher. Tip outs to, to folk who are working in the kitchen who are getting the tips is is absolutely expected. But when management starts clawing back the tips, that's a whole other thing entirely. Oh, yeah. Just as a matter of doing business. And Workers Action, just to give a shout out to them, this phenomenal organization that's been, you know, at the front of the minimum wage bill. I remember my very first bill when I was elected uh, some 15 years ago uh, as an MPP was the $10 minimum wage. At that point, it was 8 and, you know, we won that, obviously, but we won that because Union Movement got involved and Workers' Action was, again, at the forefront and is still at the forefront for the fairness in 15 and at this struggle and others. The ideal would be that somehow your industry, Chris, gets unionized at some point. So you've got protections against this kind of situation. I know that looks like an uphill struggle, but I have to say in many countries in the world, most of the service industry are unionized. Any hopes, do you think, after this, that your industry will become unionized? <laughs> I, I think that might be a little ways off. Uh, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of things that need to need to happen for for that to actually go through, especially with the idea of how people look at unions sometimes in this side of the world. I know. And that that kind of misinformation has to be changed. I know that when I uh, was in Sweden, kind of a parliamentary trip, 85 percent of the workers in the country were unionized. That may have been clawed back a bit since those days. That's crazy. <laughs> I know, 85%. And the workers at McDonald's were unionized, which nobody over here could believe. And their minimum wage was, of course, significantly higher. At that point, we were fighting for 10. They were all getting 12 at McDonald's. So it is possible. It does happen in Scandinavia. It is happening. Even for multinationals like McDonald's, just hold that out there as something that we should think about. But meanwhile, we're at the end of our time here with Chris Archer, one of the 200 laid off staff at Hotel X. So anybody who's listening to this on podcast or wherever, uh, you might want to, you know, yeah, send an email off to Hotel X and uh, let them know how you feel about this and about laying off 200 people during a pandemic. And of course, be aware of Harlow, the management company too, um, letting them know what you think about it as well. And just generally, when you're in, once the restaurants reopen, when you're in a restaurant, here's a suggestion, tip double what you would tip normally. It's a pandemic. These people are risking their health just to come to your table. So do that. And also, you know, maybe have a conversation with them about where that tip goes. Hopefully it's into their pocket and tip outs to the people in the kitchen. But again, you know, be very aware of who's working for us and who they happen to be working for. Chris, thank you so much for being on the Radical Reverend Show and good luck. Uh, keep in touch regarding your struggle and how else we can help. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Till uh, the next time out there in listener land, you've been listening to the Radical Reverend Show. We're here and on podcast. And please uh, keep those questions and comments coming. Love them. Love to hear from you and take them as we did with this instance that came to me through social media. Let me know about the struggles you're having under the pandemic and we'll highlight them. So keep listening and uh, keep responding. Keep safe as well. Till next time on the Radical Reverend Show. Bye now. Mm.